Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd open up a Bible to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is where we're going to start, and we will be in the Old Testament extensively this evening as we get ready for question and answer night for the month of June. If this is your first time being here for Q&A. This will be maybe just a little bit different format than the kind of sermons you've ever heard me preach before, or maybe that you just heard preach in general. I get the opportunity to take questions that have been submitted to me by uh, our members here. Lots of times get great questions by our kids. Sometimes even get questions that have been given to me by folks that are outside of this congregation. And then I get to sit down and study those things and try to uh, formulate some good answers, some Bible answers to the various things that are on our mind. This evening, I have packaged together a collection of questions that have arisen from our reading of the Old Testament. This year, our congregational reading schedule is in the Old Testament. We're following uh, the history, the story of the Bible as God is working through the nation of Israel. We're seeing all of that unfold. And so since we are here almost at the halfway point of 2017, I thought this would be a good time to deal with some of the questions that have kind of accumulated here from the first half of our Old Testament reading. And as you can see tonight... I've got really big plans. I intend to address five questions this evening. It's going to be a personal record if we can actually accomplish that tonight. So let's see if we can actually do that in a timely kind of fashion. It's great to see everybody tonight. Hope you've had a pleasant afternoon. It's great to be able to be here once again to study and spend time together in God's Word. Just a quick programming note. Next Sunday, uh, this pulpit will be occupied by a McKibben, but it won't be Josh McKibben. My dad, Danny McKibben, will be preaching both times. Uh, we're going to be added to the list of folks that are out of town. We'll be traveling, uh, get to do some fun stuff the first part of the week, and then it'll be work or on the weekend, be involved in a meeting uh, next weekend in Illinois. Uh, so we would covet your prayers for safe travels, and I know you'll be looking forward. You'll be in good hands as far as the preaching goes uh, next Sunday. Let's begin this evening as we tackle these questions that uh, have arisen from the Old Testament. I'm going to start with this one right here in the book of Genesis, and I think it's it's a worthwhile question. The question is this. And that is, are all of the lakes and the streams and the rivers that we have today, are they merely just the remnants of the flood that happened back in Genesis chapter 7? You might be surprised to find out that I actually received this question three times. Twice last year and actually again this year just a couple of months ago. And so what I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to reward persistence and I'm going to answer it right now. And the answer to that question is no. No, they are not. In Genesis chapter 2, the Bible explicitly states that prior to the flood, there were bodies of water. Specifically, some rivers are mentioned. In Genesis chapter 2, read with me there beginning in verse 10, talking about in the Garden of Eden, it says that a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. Verse 11, the name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. Drop down to verse 13, the name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. Verse 14, the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Indeed, one would probably wonder how the earth could even sustain itself if the only water available in the beginning of time was the salt water that would have been found in the oceans. 
There's very good evidence that it maybe had never even rained upon the earth until the flood actually happened. And so we might wonder how in the world would, would the vegetation grow and have water for, for humans and for animals. Well, Genesis chapter 2 tells us explicitly that there were fresh bodies of water prior to the flood. The flood in Genesis chapter 7 may account for some of the rivers and the lakes and the bodies of water that we have in existence today, but certainly not all of them. There were bodies of, of water in existence beforehand. In fact, the Tigris River and the Euphrates River continue to be important rivers even today in the Mesopotamia area. I think that might be a record for being able to answer that question pretty quickly. Let's just stay right here in Genesis and let's grab this second question, which I'm going to go and tell you is going to require a little bit more effort. And I'm going to tell you this is a question I have avoided for the longest time. And I've avoided it because I've just thought that the answer was just going to be so tricky and I just wasn't even sure about it. But then I sat down and actually studied it and I realized I shouldn't have been avoiding this question for so long. The question is found in Genesis chapter 6, and that is, who are the Nephilim? If you be turning to Genesis chapter 6, notice there in verse 4, let me tell you the reason that I have avoided this question for so long. It is very, very popular, and it is widely taught. You go home this afternoon, this evening, get on the internet, do a little something in your Google search bar, you will find that there are a great many people who teach that this passage is saying that angels came down from heaven and they married human women and they then got together and had this hybrid offspring who possessed superhuman strength and were of superhuman size and that's how we have these people known as the Nephilim. Well, is that what happened? Well, let's just read the passage. In Genesis chapter 6, look in verse 4. The Bible says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So there you have it. Did angels intermarry with humans? Did they produce this race of superhuman beings? Are the Nephilim the precursor to Superman and... Uh, you know, Captain America and Thor and all of those kinds of comic book heroes. Well, I believe the way that we answer that is we just want to say right here, and we want to just say what the text says. The first thing that we need to acknowledge is that, yes, sometimes that expression in verse 4, sons of God, that can be a reference to angelic beings. I believe that is the case in the book of Job, chapter 1 and in verse 6. I believe that is a reference to angels. And in fact, we've covered that in a Q&A, I think, just sometime last year. But I think we'd be a little bit surprised if that's what was being talked about right here in Genesis chapter 6. Because there hasn't been a whole lot of discussion about angels thus far in the book of Genesis. And no place in Genesis is sons of God equated to angels. Furthermore, I'm reminded of something Jesus said in Mark chapter 12 and verse 25. That angels do not marry, neither are they given in marriage. And so right away, if somebody wants to start shoving angels into Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical. I'm going to be very, very reluctant to go with that. What we want to do, as is usually the case with lots of these questions, is we want to just stay right here in the context. I think that's the key here. 
If you turn back, let's go actually back to Genesis chapter 4. That's where we really need to start here. In Genesis chapter 4, we get the well-known account of Cain killing his brother Abel. Then after that, Cain, of course, goes running and fleeing for his life. In Genesis chapter 4 and in verse 17, we're told this about Cain and the family that he establishes. In Genesis 4 verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. What follows in the next several verses are the descendants of Cain, his son Enoch, and then his son, and his son, and his son. Now, what were the descendants of Cain, what were they known for? Well, we're told a few things in those next few verses. They're known, verse 21, for being musically inclined people. Verse 22, we're told that they are craftsmen. They actually made these instruments out of metals and various things. But most of all, the descendants of Cain are known for being terribly wicked and ungodly people. They are people who do not care about the Lord at all. What they are known for, verse 23, is violence and sin. Look at verse 23 in particular. Lamech said to his wife, drop down to the last part of the verse, I've killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. That's what the descendants of Cain were known for, was for being sinful and ungodly people. What happens next in Genesis is that the Bible then shifts gears. Now we're going to learn about Adam's other son, Seth. What do we know about Seth? We'll look in the very next verse, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. Verse 26, to Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That says something. I believe that is a direct connection to Seth and to his son and to his family. That they were people who were seeking after God. In fact, when we read in chapter 5, and chapter 5 is that big long genealogy, But it contains all kinds of notes about the family lineage of Seth. You'll notice as you read there, these people are different than the people that are in the lineage of Cain. These are people who do care about God. These are people who do serve the Lord. Notice in particular verse 24, maybe one of the more famous people in uh, Seth's lineage, Enoch, this is a different Enoch. Enoch in verse 24 is said to have walked with God. One translation actually says Enoch pleased God. That godly lineage of Seth, it culminates in verse 32 with Noah. We know about Noah, don't we? We know what kind of man Noah was. Noah was a righteous man. Noah was a blameless man. He was a man who walked with God. Then all of a sudden, so all right, we've got this, got this track. Here's Cain's family, these ungodly people. Then we've got all these people in Seth's family, people who are trying to serve God. Then all of a sudden we come to chapter 6. And the earth has now become very, very corrupt. What in the world happened? Thought we had some good people in the earth. Even though there's some bad people. Had some good people in the earth. Why in the world is the earth so corrupt? Chapter 6 tells us. Verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Let me just ask you right now. Based on all those verses we just got done looking at in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, who are the sons of God here in chapter 6 verse 2? These are the people 
who are the righteous descendants of the family of Seth. That's who those people are. These are righteous men. These are godly men. And what we find out about them there in verse 2 is that these are righteous and godly men who married unrighteous and ungodly women. The daughters of man. That speaks to these women who didn't care about the Lord. There's a pretty good chance a lot of those women may have been from the lineage of Cain. And as a result, they ended up turning away the hearts of the sons of God, away from the Lord, so much so that God determines He's going to do something about this. Verse 3, The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. You drop down to verses 5 and 6 and 7, and you find that God is so grieved at the wickedness of humanity, He determines that He is going to destroy the entire world by a flood. The emphasis in Genesis chapter 6 is on the rebellion of man. It has nothing to do with angels. We can go ahead and take all those thoughts about angels and remove that from our minds. These sons of God being talked about in Genesis 6-4, these are not angels. So, having eliminated this wild possibility of some sort of human, angel, mating, hybrid thing going on, then just who exactly are the Nephilim? We figured out who their moms and dads are. Who are the Nephilim? Well, they're exactly what the text says that they are. They are, they are giants. That's who these people are. In fact, if you're reading from a King James Bible, that's just plainly what it says, isn't it? That these were giants. If you're reading from an ESV or maybe a similar translation, it may have a footnote or maybe a marginal note. The Hebrew word there is this word nephil, which just means giant. And I realize that may be kind of an underwhelming answer to that question, but these offspring of sons of God and the daughters of men, they simply were giant people. They are mentioned, of course, as well in Numbers chapter 13. That's that famous story about the 12 spies being sent to the land of Canaan. And what do they notice there? They notice the Nephilim, these giant people. And I know that even when we talk about the idea of giants in Bible times, people get really, really worked up thinking about that. The idea of giants just roaming around the earth. I mean, come on, are you crazy? That can't be. That just seems so hard to even imagine or to believe. But can I ask you this? Have you ever been to Rupp Arena watch the Kentucky Wildcats play? You ever watch some of those guys that play in the NBA? You ever watch those guys play? I would submit to you, we still have giants today. In fact, you see that guy there on the far left in the white jersey, the Warriors jersey? That's Tim Hardaway. He's six feet tall. He's my height. But he looks like a midget compared to George Murison, who is seven foot seven. That guy! is a giant. Many of our professional athletes today, they are what we would consider giants. They are just huge people. And that's all that the text in Genesis 6 verse 4 is telling us. That's what Numbers chapter 13 is telling us about the people in Canaan. That there were some really large men who lived during those days. And on top of their large stature, they had developed a reputation for being mighty and heroic, particularly, I would think, in battle and in combat situations. So it makes makes obvious sense that the Bible would refer to them as giants. Now, I recognize that's not nearly as 
exciting or maybe as controversial as the idea of this race of superhuman beings that resulted from angels mating with human beings. But we don't want to get caught up in stuff that the Bible doesn't say. We want to just say what the Bible says. And I believe the Bible just simply says that there were some really large people who were walking the face of the earth back then. That's not so hard for us to imagine because there's a lot of large people walking the face of the earth today. Let's turn our attention now to this third question, a very different kind of question. And this question actually caught me just a little bit off guard, but obviously somebody was thinking about this as they were doing our Bible reading, particularly in the book of Judges. And that is, what exactly is the significance about being left-handed? That is mentioned specifically in the book of Judges, chapter 3, and then again in chapter 20. Is there something to that? Now, that may seem like a little bit of an odd question as you're turning to Judges chapter 3, but I'm going to guess that if you are left-handed, you probably maybe are wondering to yourself, why does the Bible always go out of its way to mention people who are left-handed? You know, to my knowledge, the Bible doesn't go out of its way to talk about people who are right-handed. And so what seems to be the big deal with singling out all the lefties? Well, let's just look at those passages, those two verses in Judges. First of all, in Judges chapter 3. In Judges chapter 3, this is about Ehud, who was the second judge in Israel. In Judges 3 and in verse 15, the Bible says that the people of Israel, as was the cycle in the Judges, they cried out to the Lord. And so the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Who was he? His name was Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And so here's Ehud. Here is Ehud the judge. And the Bible says he is left-handed. And you continue reading there in chapter 3, the story is told about how he then uses that left-handedness to assassinate the king of Moab and get rid of him. That's not the only place that left-handed idea is mentioned. Look in chapter 20 now. In Judges chapter 20, look in verse 15. In Judges chapter 20 and in verses 15 and 16... There it says that the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. And among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Every one of them could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So what do we got here? We got a bunch of guys who are seemingly experts at slinging stones. And the Bible says that they are left-handed. Did you notice, though, when we read both of those passages, there actually was a common denominator with Ehud and then these men that are mentioned here that are the stone slingers. All of these men mentioned, they are Benjaminites. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize once again to anybody who is expecting a real super extravagant answer here, but I really believe that's just about all there is to it. I believe that God is simply just providing us a little bit of extra detail about one of the distinguishing traits of the men who are of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, I wonder, and I'm I'm kind of of extend this, I'm kind of going to go on a limb here. I wonder if maybe some of our suspicions that we have about left-handedness, I wonder if that is the result of being conditioned to think that the left, that's just bad. Think about in Matthew chapter 25, the judgment scene that's described there. As Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, the sheep are summoned to the right hand. Where are they going to go? They're they're going to heaven. 
But then the goats, they're summoned to the left hand. They will receive eternal punishment. We think about that, we think, oh, don't want anything to do with the left. Of course, that doesn't have anything to do with being left-handed. It has to do with being wicked and ungodly people. But it makes us not want to have anything to do with the idea of the left. Or, you know, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 2 where Solomon says that a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Whoa, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a fool. I don't want to incline my heart to the left. But, you know, the reason the Bible employs that idea and uses those kinds of terms of talking about right and left is because most people, historically and even today, are right-handed. About 90% of the world's population are right Thus, the right hand is considered, generally speaking, to be the stronger hand. It's utilized more. Which is why the Bible then uses that metaphor, and that's what we need to understand, it's used as a metaphor mostly, to speak of the right hand as being just the better of the two hands. Now, if all of that doesn't put your mind at ease, if we got any left-handers here, I'm not entirely sure. Okay, alright. Rick was not the one who submitted the question, I want you to know. Uh, but if we've got some folks that are still kind of worried about this left-handed business and wondering, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything good about left-handedness. Here's your verse. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 3. In Proverbs chapter 3, we have here this description of wisdom. Wisdom is personified here in Proverbs 3 as a woman. And I want you to notice that specifically, she is praised for her left hand. In Proverbs chapter 3, look in verse 16. Talking about wisdom, long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. And so, left-handers, there you go. There's nothing inherently wrong with being left-handed. God does not care which hand you use to pick up a pencil. But I'll say this, if you do sit down and do some genealogy work, maybe you get an account on Ancestry.com and you start working through your family tree, And if you somehow are able to trace your family tree all the way back to Old Testament times, don't be surprised if you happen to find out that you are a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin because that just seems to be one of the defining characteristics of the Benjaminites. We're rolling right along. How about a question that we... We haven't got quite to this point yet in our Bible reading. We will before the month of June is over. But I was given this question actually some time back, and I've just been trying to find the right place to insert it, and finally I've got an opportunity to do that, so we're going to do it right now. The question is this, and that is, explain to me which is the city of David. Is it Jerusalem, or is it Bethlehem? Now, I really like that question, because that says to me, somebody has been paying attention to detail in their Bible reading. Would you look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 5? In 2 Samuel 5, here is the first mention of this phrase, the expression, city of David. In 2 Samuel 5, David has just been anointed publicly now as the king of Israel. And he is beginning to make his conquest to various places. And So we're told in 2 Kings chapter 5 that he comes to this place known as Jerusalem or Zion. In 2 Kings chapter 5, look in verse 7. First of all, there in verse 7, it says, Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, 
the city of David. Drop down to verse 9 as David is, is taking over these, these fortified walls and cities there in Jerusalem. Verse 9, David lived in that stronghold and he called it the city of David. David built the city all around from the Milo inward. And so here is the city of Jerusalem being identified as the city of David. And in fact, it is referred to as the city of David about 45 times total in the Bible. Having said that about Jerusalem, though, would you now look in the New Testament? This is the one time I'll have you turn to the New Testament. In Luke chapter 2, in Luke 2, this is the well-known account of the birth of Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, look with me in verse 4. The census had been taken place, and so everybody had to return back to their hometowns. And, of course, Mary is pregnant with this child. And so we read then in Luke chapter 2 and in verse 4, that Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called, not Jerusalem, but Bethlehem. It is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And so what gives here? We've got Bethlehem now being referred to as the city of David. Well, which one is it? It's got to be one. Is the Bible contradicting itself here? What's going on? Which of these is the city of David? Well, how about this? How about both? Can we give it that? In the Old Testament, Jerusalem is primarily referred to as the city of David. And there's a reason for that. And that's because that's where David established his kingdom. If you were an Israelite and you lived during Old Testament times and you lived during the, the time of David or even in the centuries after David, that's what you associated with him with. You associated him with being the one who established that kingdom there in the city of Jerusalem. However, you should know that even though David would call Jerusalem his home for, I guess, much of his adult life, David was actually from Bethlehem. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 20. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, David is having this conversation with his good friend Jonathan. They're kind of making some plans. Saul has been just on a rampage here. So they're making some plans. But I just want to notice this expression that he uses here. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, look in verse 6. David tested Jonathan. He says, if your father misses me at all, then say this. David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all of the clan. Apparently there was some kind of reunion that was going on there and David was from there. He used to go back and tend to his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Naturally then, as David became older and became king, as he got more famous... Then Bethlehem did what a lot of small towns tend to want to do whenever people come out of their towns and become famous. They want to claim him. They want to claim him even more as his fame spreads far and wide. And that's why by the time we get to Luke chapter 2 in the New Testament, the connection is made there between Bethlehem as the city of David and the birthplace of Jesus being the city of David as well. No doubt drawing a connection between the relation to David and Jesus. Now, I know somebody might say, now, Josh, that is a cop-out answer. What do you mean? It can't be both. You can't say that it's both. you got to pick one. To which I would say, well, why can't it be both? Have you ever paid attention to the uh, those state quarters? I don't know. I think they're done doing all those now. But they did that for about a decade, making all those quarters with the, the, the specialty with the, with the various states on them. 
Do you remember those? Do you remember maybe specifically the one that was done for the state of North Carolina? The state of North Carolina on their quarter, they touted the Wright brothers. Because the Wright brothers, they flew their airplane, that very first flight that ever took place. It took place in that state. It took place in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina. And so we want to take claim of the Wright brothers. But you know what? If you got one of those Ohio quarters, they've got the Wright brothers and they've got their airplane on their quarter too. Well, how come? Well, because the Wright brothers, they built and they designed and they engineered that plane in Dayton, Ohio. And so here we got this famous set of brothers. Here we are you know, still talking about them to this day. And Ohio says we want to claim them. North Carolina also says we want to claim them too. And that's kind of what we got going on here with David. Bethlehem says, well, we'll claim David. He's from here. Jerusalem says, we'll claim David. He was our king. David became a widely known person. He's talked about even now to this present day, such an important figure, particularly in the Bible story. And so, it should not surprise us at all that there were at least two towns who wanted to make a claim on David. Which just means then for us that whenever we're reading our Bible and we come across that expression, city of David, We need to just look at the context and we need to figure out whether it's talking about Jerusalem or whether it's talking about Bethlehem. Finally then, this evening, let's go back to Genesis again. This time in chapter 19, this is a question about Lot. And I'm going to include uh, uh, the entirety of this question because there's a little bit of a statement that went along with it. It was a little bit more detailed. The question was this. Is Lot... Going to heaven, or is Lot going to hell? And then they provide a little bit of explanation as to why that is. I know that Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says that Lot was a righteous man. But if you know the end of Lot's story, at least as it's recorded in the book of Genesis, Lot's story doesn't really seem to end on a very high note. Let's just notice how Lot's story ends in Genesis 19. Read with me, beginning in verse 30. This is after his wife had been turned into a pillar of salt. But he and his daughters, they escape into the hills. Verse 30 now, Now Lot went up out of Zoar. He lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come. Let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Drop down then as well to verse uh, well, verse 34. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I laid last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. The younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Verse 36. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He's the father of the Moabites this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. That is not pleasant reading. And that's certainly not a pleasant ending to Lot's story, at least as how much the Bible gives us of that story. We don't know how the rest of Lot's life happened to turn out. I, I know what I'd like to have happened in whatever time he had left upon this earth, but we just don't have a record of that. And so as a result, it is kind of sad 
to kind of have the, the lasting image of this man who at least at one time demonstrated some true righteousness at an earlier stage of his life. It's sad to think about a guy who maybe started out really well, but then it ended seemingly pretty bad. And I suppose it is for that reason that we ask a question like that. We're curious about that. Are we going to see this guy in heaven someday? Or is he going to be sent to hell? Well, I can answer this question definitively this evening. Are you ready? The answer is, we don't know. We don't. We don't know. We are not given, first of all, enough data in the Bible to know if he ever repented of this, of his drunkenness and being involved in all that, putting himself in that situation. We don't know if he repented of all of those terrible things and if he died in his sins. Or we don't know if he just continued on living the life that he was living and just kind of spiraling downward and dying in a a horrible spiritual condition. We just don't know. And in fact, we can't know. Not on this side of eternity. And what I'm saying to you this evening is that we need to just be content with that answer. In fact, I'm going to actually using this as an opportunity to say something about judging eternal destinations. Because not only have I been asked about Lot, but I've got a stockpile of questions that I've been asked almost that exact same question about a whole bunch of other Bible characters. What about Uzzah? What about Solomon? There's a guy that started well, but it seemed like it ended kind of bad. What about Rahab and her family? There is a whole host of people that we question and we ask about that. And so I'm going to deal with that question one time for all time. The truth of the matter is, we don't have to judge, and I believe we ought to be glad that we don't have to judge. In fact, tonight what I want to do is I want to urge all of us to get out of the eternal judging business. That's just not our place. I'm reminded of what Abraham said in Genesis 18 and verse 25, that the judge of all the earth will do right. And that's exactly right. I am content to just say that, And leave it at that. God's going to handle situations like that that seem like they might be a little bit prickly, seem like there might be some uncertainty and some doubt. God's going to handle that. He'll know exactly what to do and He will do it exactly right. He is just. And I'm saying this this evening because I do not intend to answer any more questions about did so-and-so go to heaven? Did so-and-so go to hell? We don't know. It's just not our business. And frankly, we're just not even qualified to get into that business. God's ways are not our ways. They are so much higher than our ways. And He knows things about people that you and I can never know. He knows the intentions of people's heart. He knows people's motives. He knows the opportunities that they've had, the opportunities that maybe they have not had. Only He knows those things, which means it doesn't matter what I get up here and say. I often say this at funerals, and I know my dad said this at funerals. It doesn't matter what we get up and say, nothing that we say is ever going to change that individual's eternal destiny. At the moment they died, their fate was sealed. And so we can stand up here and we can say, I am just sure she's going to be in heaven someday. Or I'm just pretty confident that guy is going to hell. We don't know that. In fact, when I read in the Bible, there are a lot of folks that I'm just pretty sure I've got figured out And lo and behold, God's ways are way different than my ways. I think about Uzzah. I'd have thought, surely, if somebody's going to get a pass, that guy's going to get a pass. He had really great intentions. He didn't get a pass. And then there are also people in the Bible that I look at and I just think, man, that guy's kind of ratty. 
That guy's just, he's just a scallywag. I'm thinking about guys like Jacob. And then God blesses him. He's blessed abundantly. It's not our place. It's never going to be our place to know the answer to that kind of question on this side of eternity. We'll learn about all that when we meet the Lord in judgment and when we're with Him in heaven for all of eternity. God's going to take care of it. We want to get out of the eternal judging business. We simply then want to focus on making sure that our own soul is ready for that great and final day. And I really can't think of a more appropriate thing to say as we extend the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you prepared? I made the point this morning as we talked about hearing, that one of the most critical components of hearing God's Word being preached is that you listen for yourself. And that's what this is about right now. Examining self. Where am I in my walk with God? This is not about anybody else in this room right now. This is about me, personally. Where am I at in my walk with the Lord? If you're not a Christian this evening, we are encouraging you through the words of this song to begin walking with the Lord, to answer Zion's call and to become a Christian. Put Jesus Christ on in baptism. Have all your sins washed away. Come up out of that water to begin walking in newness of life. If we can assist you in doing that tonight, we're ready to do just that. If you are a child of God, but you're not walking faithfully with the Lord, You need to stop, and I need to stop, and we need to all just think right now. Me personally, where am I? Is there some some areas of my life I need to shore up? Is there some areas of my life that I just need to flat out repent? I need to ask and throw myself at God's mercy and ask for His forgiveness. We can pray with you and encourage you, brother or sister. This invitation is for you as well. Let's all get ready. Let's prepare our souls to meet the Lord in judgment. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.